The pandemic's effect on our healthcare system is still playing out in real time, and it goes beyond the burnout felt by frontline workers who've borne a heavy cost for years now. Hospitals say they're hurting financially, and that will invariably trickle down to affect patients. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, investigative reporter Jeff Manning. On the first half of the show, we talked about the financial situation at some of Oregon's largest and smallest hospitals, how it got to this point, and what the looming crisis means for patients. On the second half of the show, we talked about the late advertising giant Dan Wyden and his legacy. Here's our conversation. Jeff Manning, thanks for coming back on the show. Hi, Andrew. So, Jeff, we're going to talk about two things that may not be super connected today, hospitals and one of the world's most prominent ad agencies and its founder who recently died. Let's start with hospitals. We've chatted several times throughout the past two plus years, Jeff, about healthcare workers and burnout, but I don't think we've chatted about the financial health of these critical institutions. You recently looked into the financial picture at hospitals across Oregon. What did you find? I found nothing but red ink. Uh, The hospitals are uh, in a world of hurt. They really do seem a bit flummoxed about what to do. They're in a weird situation where they can't cut costs to prosperity. The typical sort of bean counter, corporate bean counter approach is not going to work here because it's cutting back and being too lean that has got them in this jam in the first place. They don't have enough caregivers, so they don't have enough beds. So they don't, they're not bringing enough, enough revenue. Too many patients who are in the hospital shouldn't be there. Uh, they are well enough to leave the hospital, but they can't because they're not well enough to go home or they don't have a home. And there are no nurses at the rehab facilities to, uh, you know, treat them in that sort of intermediate stage between hospitalization and living at home or whatever passes for a home. So as a result, there's this big traffic jam in the patient flow, and that has been devastating to the bottom line. That is a lot that you just very eloquently summed up in very short order. Uh, I I don't think that a lot of people, when they think of hospitals, you know, when they get a bill, obviously, they're thinking about the financial piece of it, but they're not often, I would imagine, when they're intersecting with the healthcare system worried about the financial well-being of these hospitals. But it sounds like this is manifesting in a lot of different ways for patients, right? It's not just something that we should worry about as a the bottom line. Like you said, there's other issues at play here. Well, the bottom line matters to to patients if their hospital disappears on them. You know, I mean, if it's yeah. uh, if you're in an outlying area where there aren't a lot of options and your small hospital is, uh, you know, suddenly having to get out of the maternity business or, or get out of the behavioral health business to the extent that they have it. That really matters to people. And that is something that should be of great concern to every Oregonian. But let me try to break it down for you because I agree that uh, most people don't put corporate finance and hospitals in the same category. But they're, they're big businesses. Right. They may be not for profits, but they're very big businesses with billions of dollars of revenue every year. They, they need to make ends meet and they may not, they, they don't call them profits and losses, but they experience them just like any other company does. OHSU, Providence, St. Charles and Ben's, the biggest names in the healthcare business in this state 
are really suffering big, big time expenses in excess of revenue. And the biggest, the, cul the, the culprit is COVID. They're losing too many people, too many really gifted, important caregivers are fed up, exhausted, burnt out. We've talked about that before. Mm -hmm. What I never really, I never closed the loop on that and, and realized that the, the loss of those people were going to have a really negative uh, financial implications. Yeah, and that was something that really jumped out to me in your reporting and having some family members who work in the healthcare field, I'm aware of the kind of the trend of having traveling workers. Um, it's good for the worker, but it's not good for the institution. Can you explain that? Um, it's not good for the institution's bottom line, right? Because these workers are, are spendy. They can be, you know, like twice as expensive, three times as expensive as an in-house nurse. I don't, you know, frankly, living on the road in a motel, eating restaurant food, that's not a great life. Uh, but if you are going to be making three times what you'd make otherwise, I'm surprised more nurses don't go that route. And that leaves the hospitals in the unenviable position of having to hire these travelers. Uh, their regular employees have quit. Some of them because they're just fed up and can't take it anymore. Others because they want to be travelers and make a lot more money. Either way, it's rotten for the patients, rotten for the hospitals. The hospitals have been their own worst enemy at times. They've been tight with the dollars and they've been uh, alienating their employees and making it all too easy for them to leave. Um, you know, Providence, the, the constant, constant uh, war chants going out from the rank and file about striking and demanding re uh, a renegotiated contract. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Providence at times seems like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Just when things seemed to be a little bit normal, they went to a new computer system that uh, ever, that shorted everybody on the pay that they were owed. That was very, very recently. The state of, uh, rela of relations between Providence management and their employees is, may be at an all-time low. You mentioned St. Charles earlier, which uh, for people who might not know is out in, in Bend and the surrounding area and in, in central Oregon. Uh, can you talk about what you learned from talking to uh, leaders at that, you know, critical healthcare provider in, um, you know, a large and growing part of our state? How are they faring? Uh, they have been uh, struggling. It is really difficult. They are losing money like most hospitals in Oregon. Um, they uh, have laid off folks. They've eliminated positions. Their CEO, a longtime respected guy, quit suddenly. Um, they they seem to be as hard up against it as any uh, major Oregon hospital. Had a long talk with a whole team of people, including their CEO and CFO, last week. You know, as the CFO said, they are perilously close, to use his words exactly, perilously close to not being able to make their to comply with all of their covenants, the promises about their financial condition that they made to the to the purchaser of their bonds. Now, again, I know that's really complicated. Mm -hmm. doesn't have much to do with hospital visits, but it does. Hospitals raise money by selling bonds, which is a form of debt. When they do that, they agree to financial terms. And part of those financial terms is that they can meet certain tests 
that measure their financial capability. Every hospital system in the state is struggling right now, and uh, meeting those debt covenant covenants, as they're known, is becoming increasingly difficult. So what options do these providers have to to make those payments um you know there's not a lot of options but i can imagine some of them what are what are they looking at or asking uh leaders in the political world to do well the hospitals just went hat in hand to the legislative e-board begging for money begging for emergency assistance they got 11 million dollars that is a drop in the bucket you know i mean 11 million is real money but uh, when you consider that the hospitals in oregon collectively lost more than 200 million dollars in the first half of the year um that that's that's a lot of dough even by hospital standards ohsu is a bit of a different animal uh because they are quasi public and can can and do turn to the state all the time for additional financial support mm-hmm. but uh they're they're a really important institution in the state they they take the toughest patients they educate our future nurses and doctors, and uh, uh, it is not going well for them at all. Um, they're losing big money, and they are way, way off budget. It doesn't appear that they anticipated this at all, and it's catching them by big surprise. If I had a dime for every time someone in the hospital business told me that I've been in this business for 40 years and never seen anything like this, I could buy you lunch, Andrew. It's... Uh, <laughs> It is, uh, they don't know what to do. So as you reported, some of these hospitals, right, are are turning to their cash reserves, but that's problematic too, right? I mean, that's not going to last forever. That is a problem because uh, remember those debt covenants, those promises they made to the people who are providing them the upfront cash to maintain their reserves at a certain level. So they can't just spend it willy-nilly. OHSU is, uh, they are tapping into the reserves, like many of the institutions are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is, I'm sure some hospital CFO out there is going to scream bloody murder when he hears this. But uh, the rule of thumb, as I understand it, is if you're going to get a top rating from one of the ratings agencies, to have cash on hand adequate to pay for a year of operation. Uh, OHSU, like St. Charles, they're well under a year. And uh, um, they figure OHSU says, barring some big improvement, they'll be down under 200 days of cash on hand by uh, fiscal 27 because they have no choice but to tap into their reserves. That's not the kind of number that OHSU has ever had before. And it would put them way down in the ratings game, which is going to make their money more expensive, which is going to make the whole problem worse. It's a tough situation. So, I mean, what are some procedures, I guess, or things that aren't happening now that are money makers for hospitals? I mean, and that's not going to be a deal breaker, right? If you have a bunch of people across the state blowing out their ACLs and coming in and getting, you know, surgeries, that's not what we're talking about here in terms of making up some of these shortfalls. Well, it'll take a lot of ACLs to, to bring everybody back up to a sound financial position. Um, I think that uh, everybody says we just need to staff up. You know, we need to we need to staff up to the point that we can increase our number of uh, open beds, and so that we don't get patients stuck inside the hospital who can't get out. There are like seven hundred plus 
Oregonians now that are in this sort of hospital limbo. There's nowhere to put them. They can't turn them down. They have to let them in. But next step down the road, the rehab facility or the foster home or whatever, they don't have to take them. So there's a closed, there's an open door at this end, closed door here. Mm. And, you know, those adult foster homes and rehab facilities, they are hurting for labor even more than the hospitals are. So they can't, they can't take them. So I'm, I'm not sure the extent of which this factors into the crisis, but many of these same hospital institutions just filed a lawsuit in the past week or so um, against the state and the Oregon Health Authority saying basically uh, we can't send patients to the Oregon State Hospital who who need more intensive behavioral health care and uh, more extensive uh, supervision that can't be provided. Is Is that also a piece of this puzzle too? Jeff, or is that kind of just a drop in the bucket? Yeah, the OHA must be uh, must be feeling really good that they uh, provided they went to bat for the hospitals before the legislative board to get that eleven million, and uh, right away the hospitals smack them for, with a lawsuit for the, uh, the the management of the Oregon State Hospital, and then they sued them again, or at least serve notice that they're going to sue them again this week or uh, a state law that they don't want to comply with because they think it's going to be too onerous, which it may be, I don't know. But anyway, Pat Allen and the rest of the OHA, I'm sure, is feeling um, profoundly beat up at this point. But behavioral health is a really important part of this whole mix because there's there's nowhere to put a lot of these patients because of the labor shortage, but there never has been anywhere to put the behavioral health patients. And those are more extensive or more expensive patients, I would imagine, as well, right? They take more supervision in some cases. They take they're they they're more expensive. There is no easy solution. You know, it's not like they're going to be better in two weeks and ready to go back home and and become a productive member of society. It's just uh, it's a very uh, very difficult place to be. Uh, and there's when it when it comes to behavioral health. Um, there, there, there's ne- that's never operated smoothly in this state. The, the, you know, the the broken knees and the separated shoulders, those have been operating fine, but those aren't working now either because of the nursing shortage. Before we take a quick break, Jeff, is there anything else um, just on the overall dynamic in the healthcare uh, world that we didn't touch on that you think is important? Well, we've talked a lot about money and, and uh, bonds and debt and debt ratings. The, the, the real key here for Oregonians, and hospitals are the first to admit this, hospital executives are the first to admit this, that this is not just a financial issue. It is a quality of care issue. Uh, the head of the hospital down in Gold Beach told me that uh, the urban hospitals' problems are directly felt by even the smallest hospitals because the typical practice is for someone who is really acutely ill or is badly injured to be sent life-flighted to the urban hospitals. And there is no space for these folks anymore. The emergency system is as bogged down as everything else in these hospitals. This is raises all sorts of really troubling questions about the quality of care that people are getting in this state. Let's take a quick break, then we'll come back and talk a bit more with Jeff Manning, investigative reporter for The Oregonian and Oregon Live. 
Okay, Jeff. So Oregon lost an absolute giant in recent days. Dan Wyden died at the age of 77. Can you tell us about Dan Wyden's life and how he charted his course to becoming really a legend in his field? Dan Wyden once told me this hilarious story. His dad was a guy named Duke Wyden, who was uh, in his own right, a very important guy in Portland business circles back in the day. And uh, Dan was following in his footsteps and, you know, somewhere in that advertising, copywriting, PR slice of the world. He was young and he and his dad didn't always see eye to eye. He, he told me the story once Dan did about driving to the coast uh, and getting into a big argument with his dad, Duke, about what he wanted to do with his life and whether he wanted to work in corporate America or whether he was going to, because it was the 60s and, and mm -hmm. crazy times. And they got so mad at one another that Duke pulled over in the middle of the Van Duzer corridor on the way to Lincoln City, dropped his son off and said, see you later, took off. <laughs> Dan loved that story because he loved his dad. And, and uh, but you know, it was, and eventually he, they found one another somewhere in Lincoln City, I do believe, or Neskowin, I think is where they were. Uh, but uh, he was a great guy, great storyteller, full of, uh, of anecdotes. And he... Surprise! I think maybe he surprised himself as most as much as anybody that he became one of the most important advertising executives in the world. It was in part because of Nike and the, you know, the chance pairing of uh, Phil Knight and Dan Wyden, and there was a real magic there. But I think Wyden probably would have got there even without Nike. He was an incredibly smart and gifted guy. So obviously, you're telling an anecdote of a time you talked to him. Um, can you just talk about your relationship as a source, I guess, and how well you knew him? And, you know, you just gave us a good anecdote there, but what else can you tell us about what Dan Wyden was like? Uh, you know, I don't want to pretend like we were best pals. We, we weren't. Um, he was a very busy guy. He had a big company to run, and uh, he was in incredibly engaged in what he did. And, you know, I would come and go. And, uh, but he was always engaging, really a fun guy to interview, um, uh, very self deprecating. And, uh, uh, his people, they loved him. Love is sort of an easy word to throw around, but, uh, people just adored him. They, they, he, he made the work environment challenging, but great fun. Yeah, it's kind of interesting when you look back at his legacies in the Portland area and beyond. I mean, it's it's not that Wyden and Kennedy invented office culture, but they certainly moved it forward when you think about their office in the Pearl District and kind of the the Founders Day parties that they would have that were pretty legendary. Um, can you just talk about how his company that he built fit into that world, uh, I guess, here in, in the Portland area? Well, you know, uh, back in the day when I started covering business in this town, there were a lot of ad agencies. Um, there were, they, none of them were Wyden and Kennedy size, uh, but uh, Wyden and Kennedy wasn't as big then as it was now. Um, and it was really fun to cover all, they were a great crew of folks and Wyden, 
that agency was just destined for bigger and better things. And it became this giant killer from out in the middle of nowhere that was so strong on the creative side that they could go toe to toe with any other agency anywhere. I'm not saying they didn't have egos. They had big egos and they, they deserved it because they were very successful. They, they, uh, they had a knack for tweaking the public consciousness for, for introducing these stupid little catchphrases that became <laughs> part of the vernacular and uh give us a few i think we all know several of them but yeah you know i mean obviously just do it and bow nose and uh yeah i'm dating myself here because so many of these are from the <laughs> 80s but uh they help make some stars out of people you know and uh um, and Nike was there underwriting a lot of it and, and they deserve huge credit for that. Um, it was a, it was a really interesting and fun thing to watch. Uh, and you know, some of their best work sort of came and went, you know, I mean, uh, there was the big, big budget, special effect laden, uh, Jim Riswold ads. And then there were like Janet Champ was this copywriter there who, wrote beautiful copy. She, um, I don't know if you remember this as the father of a couple daughters. Mm -hmm. It's a great campaign called, if you let me play sports, that was about, uh, girls and sports and, uh, way ahead of its time. And, uh, it, it caused a lot of kerfluffle at the time. But, uh, if you ever want to look at some really emotional, emotionally powerful advertising, Get on YouTube and and find those if you let me play sports ads. They were great. You know, I mean, one of the most challenging times for for uh, Wyden and Kennedy was back in the mid mid nineties, late nineties. Um, they were they had firmly established themselves as you know one of the hottest agencies in the world because of the Nike work, but they needed to replicate it. They needed to to show the world that they could do this with another client, and they got Microsoft, and everyone thought, okay, wow. The combination of Microsoft and Wyden, that is going to be just magic. That is going to be amazing stuff. Instead, it, it just, uh, it tore the agency apart. It was, uh, it was not a happy time. It was one of the few times that Wyden has had to lay people off. Um, Wyden, the culture between Wyden and Kennedy and Microsoft was so different. And Microsoft wanted to quantify everything. They wanted everything pre-tested. They didn't really, the things that Nike prized in an ad, was it funny? Was it cool? Was it culturally right for them? Microsoft just wasn't there. They were a different company. And uh, it got really difficult inside the company because there were the Microsoft people who wanted that business to do well. And then there was everybody else who thought Microsoft was the evil empire. That was a real tough time for Dan. A lot of people left, a lot of longtime people left at that point who it was really tough to see them go. I wrote about that. And uh, uh, the thing I admired about Dan was that uh, he didn't try to deny it. He didn't try to stonewall me. He, he dealt with it. When, when, I, when he realized that I knew about the whole Microsoft disaster, he just sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, yeah, you, you got it. You're right. And, uh, that I had always admired that, that, uh, he, he didn't try to shine me on. And this was this right around the time that Microsoft was in antitrust proceedings. It was, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I remember the, uh, start me up campaign 
they uh, they had bought the rights to the Rolling Stones song, and just like they had bought the rights to Instant Karma and Revolution before that, and mm -hmm. uh, it was supposed to be the beginning of uh, the Microsoft Widen Kennedy love affair, and uh, it just didn't happen. And uh, finally, my, the two sides decided they decided to part ways, and uh, probably the best thing that ever happened to uh, to Widen Kennedy. Well, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's not all up, up, up all the time, right? I mean, you're going to have, you're going to have fits and starts. You're going to have, um, accounts that just aren't the right fit or it doesn't work out. Uh, that's kind of the story of any company, let alone a creative agency like Wyden and Kennedy. Yeah, it's true. And I think that they've grown up a little bit. I think that they are better at dealing with big corporations now. Their big, their biggest clients now are Nike, Ford, and uh mcdonald's <laughs> so uh uh they are they've they're mainstream when you talk to people who either worked for wyden and kennedy or knew dan wyden for the obituary um were there any stories that stuck out to you and kind of what was the commonality i guess uh when people describe this uh, so influential oregonian Jerry Cronin told me a story that I did include in the obit that I'd never heard before that I thought was, I included it because I thought it said a lot about Wyden. It was very, back in the very early days of the agency, they didn't have much business and uh, they latched onto the Gallo Wine Company out of uh, the Central Valley in California. It was Cronin's account and he was going down to Modesto once a month to pitch them on various ideas. And these guys turned thumbs down on everything. <laughs> and uh, Cronin was desperate to, to get them to accept anything. But on the other hand, he's, he finally came to the realization, like, hell, if they're going to pay us, and they are paying us for just for doing no work other than me flying down once a month, what the hell? Let's just milk it for all it's worth. Uh, but it was Wyden who came to him and, and demanded to know, well, now, what's up with Gallo? And uh, Jerry said, finally told him, I can't seem to get anything that they're interested in. But, the, you know, I'll just keep on trying. And Wyden said, no, no, hmm. we're done with Gallo. We're not going to collect anybody's money on the, on the cheap for not providing them with quality product. That's what we're about. And if, we, if they don't like what we do, we're going to quit the account. And they did. And, uh, you know, it was just a small little development in the early days of that agency. But I think it says something about his integrity and uh about his ambition so today this company winding kennedy has 1500 people at eight offices across the world why do you think they've had such lasting power all these years uh, you know i keep on thinking that okay this can't last forever uh, the honeymoon's going to be over nike's going to somehow move on or but it just never happens you know dan dan's been out of the agency for a decade that is the acid test, you know, or can you continue on at that level? I mean, it was sort of like, you know, Nike's gone through the same thing in the post Phil Knight era. And they've both proven that, yes, you can move on. And yes, you can continue to thrive. Some of the early folks at Wyden are still there. They, that's sort of a testament to Dan and the management team that he set up. And I, I didn't know this, but uh, they've apparently, the ownership of the agency has shifted to a trust created by Dan and Dave Lure, his longtime business guy. 
And uh, this trust is chaired by Dave Lure. And uh, apparently one of the underlying underlying corporate charter is that uh, they cannot sell. This thing's going to stay in the hands of this trust. And as Lure said, if he has anything to do with it, it'll remain based in Portland in perpetuity. So Dan Wyden is, is gone and David Kennedy is his longtime partner. Obviously, the other namesake of the company is gone. But as you're describing it, it seems like Wyden and Kennedy is going to live on. Uh, it sure it sure does appear to be the case. Um, you know, the ad, ad business is pretty volatile and uh, you never know. But uh, they've been doing it for 10 years now post-Wyden and uh, seem to be doing quite well. Do you have any insights or any predictions as to what the Founders Day party will be like next year come April? Because I would imagine they'll have something up their sleeve. You know, that is a really good question. Uh, <clears throat> having never been invited to a Founders Day party, uh, I, I really wouldn't know what they're all about. But no, I'm just joking. I, I think that uh, it'll probably be a very moving testament to the to the guy that they all see as their creative father, their creative guru. They, I think they probably know, I'm sure they do better than I, that Dan is the last person in the world who would want them to sort of dwell on that and just move on and, and continue with the good work. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for your tribute to Dan Wyden, an Oregonian that uh, really kind of was a historic in his accomplishments. I appreciate your time and your work. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to Jeff's story about the healthcare system and his Dan Wyden obituary in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show and tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.